This morning's sermon text is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord is forever. Go ahead and turn in your Bible. Hopefully you have the one with you to First Peter chapter 4. And I'll pray if we do that. Father in heaven, I do pray that the, the song, the words that we just sang would be true in our hearts and in our lives. That, that the goodness of Jesus would be all that we uh, hope for and need uh, in every situation. Um, even as we address um, this topic of suffering um, for the sake of the gospel, God, that we would be reminded especially uh, that the goodness of, of Jesus is all that we need uh, in, our, um, in blessing and, and in sorrow. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So C.S. Lewis wrote a, a little book called The Problem of Pain. Um, and he says this is one of his more famous quotes from the book. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. So the age-old question that, that, that's, that C.S. Lewis is even addressing here, but we continue to address now, is if God is so good... Why does he allow us to suffer? I mean, suffering, pain, hardship, all seem so pointless. Why does God allow them? Why can't we just be be happy and comfortable and safe and at peace at all times, in every way? Why can't we just have that? So C.S. Lewis was right. Pain insists on being attended to. As much as we want to ignore it, uh, we can't. We have to make sense out of suffering. And thankfully, we have God's word before us that does just that. 
And this is what Peter is doing in our text this morning. He is attending to the pain of his readers because they are going through suffering. And he is helping them to see it in light of, in light of the gospel in three particular ways. One is he is helping them uh, frame their suffering. The second is, is after he has a, has a good framework for them, he now uh, is showing them how to focus their suffering. And then at the very end, Peter is saying, this is what is happening in your suffering. suffering. You are being forged in the gospel in your suffering. So framing our suffering, focusing our suffering, and forging or forged in our suffering. So first, framing our suffering. Look at verse 12. Peter begins, Beloved, or, he, or some of your translations might say, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now I love that Peter begins this part of his letter in this way. Uh, he kind of after everything he's just written, he kind of takes it back up to remind him, look, dear friends, I know that you are suffering now. I know that you are experiencing hurt for the, for in, because you're a Christian. But don't be surprised by this. Because Peter truly wants his, his readers to understand what's going on. He doesn't want them to be unaware, and he wants them to react rightly when these fiery trials do come upon them. And Peter is saying, if they're not already, they will. Because the trials from the outside world that Peter's readers are experiencing are in real time here as Peter writes this letter. And it probably had them asking the same questions that we ask. Why is this happening to us? We're good people. We, we're, we're God's people. Why would God allow bad things to happen to us? And Peter quickly calls it here in verse 12. He says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. So why does Peter call this a test? Well, it's, it's a test not just to see if, if it's not just a, a, you know, a pass or a fail test and you're kind of scribbling into um, your Scantron or whatever it is that you, but that you use. Peter is saying, this is a test of your faithfulness as a Christian. Peter's already wrote about this. This isn't new um, news here. In chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the last day when Jesus returns. So Peter wants his readers to be clear. And he wants them to understand that the pain they experience is not pointless. It is not something that you need to get rid of or to kind of hurry through because the pain that you are experiencing is meant to make you more like Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that the pain that you are currently experiencing or the pain that you may have suffered um, you know, from as, a, as a child, or the pain that you are eventually going to enter into, do you believe that God is using that to make you more like Christ and to make you 
trust in Him. Because, I say that because, how you handle pain, how you handle suffering, how you handle hard seasons, says a lot about where you are in your walk with Christ. It says a lot about uh, whether or not you have faith in Christ when those hard seasons come upon you. Now, let me just very clearly say, that doesn't mean you can't admit something is hard. Okay? The, the whole idea of fake it till you make it is a lie. Okay? Uh, neither of those options are helpful to, to, to walking through suffering, nor are they biblical. So if something is hard, it is okay to say it's hard to those around you. Not to just kind of buck up and say, everything's good, everything's fine, I'm okay. So just listen to how I was reminded of, the, of, of Psalm 88, one of my favorite psalms. But listen to how the, the writer of Psalm 88 handles pain and then take this as an application for you. So he writes, But I cry to you, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and I have been close to death since my youth. I have endured your terrors. I am in despair. I'm depressed. Your rage has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like water. They have battered me completely. You have distanced my loved one and friends from me. My only friend is darkness. My only friend is darkness. It's a cheery psalm, I know. Um, and one of my favorites because I feel like it is, I mean, all of Scripture is honest, but I feel like that is like the most honest you could possibly get. It doesn't end with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It says uh, darkness is my closest friend. But surprisingly, because they're in the Bible, and it's a psalm, those are the prayers of someone who truly believes in God. Someone who believes that God is sovereign even over these particular hard situations that have come upon him. That God is with him. Even when darkness is his closest friend. And we know this because he's very honest about how he feels before God. He's praying to God here. He's not talking to a friend. He's praying to his God. So, so we have to remember in our suffering what is true about God. When we are walking through suffering, when we are walking through pain, we have to remember what is true about God. One of the major things is, is that he is a good father. He is a good father. He, he, loves his, <clears throat> he loves his children more than you could ever love your own children. He loves you way more than that. He, he knows you intimately, even, even more intimately than even the closest person to you. And if you're married, that's your spouse. God knows you more than they do. And he knows exactly what you need. And a lot of the time, 
this is different than what you want. What God knows you, what God knows you need is, is, is a lot of the time different than what you want. That is what makes it hard when suffering and pain come upon you. Because you wouldn't choose that. <laughs> you wouldn't choose, yes, Lord, please let me suffer miserably. You wouldn't choose that. But we also don't sit around wondering why it's happening to us either. Even as we cry out, we have to remember that while God is good and while God, God is sovereign and in control of all things, we have to remember as well, we live in a broken world. And broken things don't work, work correctly. They will fail us. And this includes people. They will fail us. They will disappoint us. They will hurt us. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised or taken off guard when it does happen. But rather, Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Peter says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So admittedly, Peter's words uh, sound strange and even counterintuitive to the uninformed reader. Rejoice in your suffering. That's what Peter says. But you haven't misheard him. Peter says when suffering comes upon you, your response is to be joy. Now, I think we've kind of defined the word joy. We assume that means that we are to just be happy and chipper all the time and say, that's a really joyful person right there. That is not what the word joy means. This isn't any old kind of just pure happiness. This isn't just pretending to be happy and, and just putting a smile on your face. This is joy that has, has its suffering properly framed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the only reason we can begin to rejoice in our pain and rejoice in our suffering is because Jesus went before us and did it first. Jesus suffered like no other person has ever suffered uh, in all of human history. And Jesus rejoiced in that. He counted it all joy, and this allows us to do the exact same thing as what James tells us in James chapter 1. So don't be surprised, but rejoice. Now that is a good thought and a good application for the believer in this room to kind of meditate upon and say, how do I handle my suffering? Do I rejoice? What does it look like to rejoice? I'll leave that to you to kind of apply that to your life uh, maybe this afternoon and this week. But for the ones in the room who don't yet believe, let me just say that the suffering that you are experiencing right now or you have experienced in the past or you will experience in the future, is framed in this way as well. Peter, God's word has something to say to you about suffering today as well. Your suffering is God calling you to himself. Your suffering is God letting you know that you cannot do it. You cannot make yourself right. You cannot make yourself good. None of those things will work. And as you suffer, God is proving to you that you can't do it. 
And He's calling you to trust Him and to open your eyes to this truth. That you are a sinner, that you are broken, and that you are in need of redemption that only can be found in God's Son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis's words again, I don't know if you caught that. He said, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument, admittedly so. It may lead to final and unrepented rebellion, so it may push people away from God, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. It, it, it reminds you and yells at you to say that, this, that you cannot save yourself. You never will. The flag is planted. The truth is there. So is God planting that flag in you today? Is He, is he moving in you in that way through suffering? And I'm sorry you're walking through suffering. I really am. And I would love to speak to you more about that uh, even today. To make sense of your suffering through the lens of the gospel. So what does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings? Well, it means to be able to praise God in the midst of your suffering. So to be able to say, as Job said, after all his calamity was pronounced on him, that Bonnie read for us earlier, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had a gospel framework for his suffering. Even before it happened to him, it wasn't like happening in the midst of it. He was praying for, he knew his kids were partying every night. He knew they were walking in sin, you know. So he went to the Lord for them. He could worship the Lord. And so when he gets to this point when, when everything, everything that we all hold dear, wealth, uh, status, uh, our children, you know, family, um, comfort, everything is taken away from Job. All, everything that he could trust in is taken away and he can still worship God. Or then you jump to the New Testament and you know Paul's sufferings and Paul walked through a lot and Paul was a believer when he suffered all of these things. Paul lived in, in comfort and luxury before he came to Jesus. And then when he becomes a Christian, Jesus tells him, you are going to suffer for my namesake. And Paul embraces that. Philippians 3. Paul can say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then Peter, the author here, can speak from his own experience as well, which is always a good practice to listen to someone who has actually had to apply what they are talking about. Those things, that, listening to wisdom. And Peter is one that could point back and say, oh yeah, I remember uh, when we were arrested and we were beaten uh, and we were left for dead in a jail and then God uh, rescued us out of that and then this is how they, they, they respond, Acts 5.41. I think I read this last week, but 
Then they left the presence of the council to the men that just beat them to a bloody pulp and left them for dead in a prison. We left their presence rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And then they kept preaching the gospel. So how can you praise God in the midst of suffering? Well, the same way these men did. By recognizing that when you suffer, you are sharing in Christ's sufferings for you. So Peter is saying to rejoice in your suffering now prepares you to rejoice and be glad forever when Christ returns. So just like Job was was practiced and ready to rejoice and to worship even in his calamity, we too will be ready to rejoice and worship at the end of days as believers. So rejoicing in suffering is practice for rejoicing in eternity. If you can't rejoice now, how will you rejoice in the last days? Quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews 5 through 11. It might be a familiar, uh, familiar verses to you, but he says this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So whatever sufferings you are experiencing, Christian brother or sister, Whatever pain or sorrow you may, uh, may, may be feeling or have felt or will feel, remember that this is from your loving Father's hand to do these very things that the book of Hebrews tells you He's doing. And that this will later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness because we have been trained by it. So making sure... Our suffering is properly framed by the gospel, allows us to focus our suffering in the right direction, which Peter says is the glory of God. Which means whether we are suffering or not, our ultimate end in everything we meet, in everything that we encounter as a believer, is God's glory. Look at verse 14. Peter gives an example. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So the curious thing is here, Peter doesn't say that the results of of being insulted is is being crushed. The result of being insulted is a low self-esteem. 
the result of being uh, insulted is um, it's just you're hurt and offended and you just kind of you just ignore that person for the rest of your life or, or whatever it is or however you handle those sorts of things. Peter says the opposite. Peter says when you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's a blessing. You are blessed by that. Now, I know there are a lot of health and wealth, prosperity, uh, garbage gospel preachers out there, a lot in our city, that would, that would completely ignore a verse like this. Because to be insulted is, is, is not a, a blessing. That doesn't that isn't do us any good from, from that perspective. But the Bible says that when you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So this is, this is what one author calls a redemptive reversal. Because it is taking something the world sees as bad and some in the church see as bad and reverses it to say it's act, it actually represents something good happening to you. That you are blessed because you, uh, because you are being insulted, not for your name, but for the name of your Savior. Which means you are making it obvious that Jesus is the one who has saved you. And that's why you're being insulted. So ultimately, why does Peter say we're blessed? Well, he says we're blessed because the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God, rests upon you. Which means this is not just something you will experience in the future at the end of days and you will go to heaven and everything will be okay. Uh, Peter is telling us and reminding us this is your present possession, Christian. That you possess the spirit of glory, the spirit of God, rest upon you now. So as when you become a Christian, the spirit, the Bible tells, tells us that the spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells in you. He is the helper that Jesus promised that he would send to his people. So the spirit of God has been given to you already, and, and, and because it's been given to you, this is what enables you to rejoice in your suffering. Not your strength, not you trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or to do anything in your own power. It is because the Spirit of God dwells in you that you are able to endure whatever suffering comes your way. Even death. You can look in the face of death and laugh because the Spirit of God is in you. So that means suffering for the name of Christ is, in a way, an assurance of your salvation in Christ. It's an assurance to you that God is with you, that the Spirit lives inside of you. But not all suffering, because I know some of you, you might even be getting on Facebook right now to like fire off at somebody and go, I'm suffering for the name of Christ. You're not, that's not what I'm talking about here. And that's not what Peter's talking about either. Because not all suffering is like this. And Peter is very clear to include this in verse 15. Look there with me. Just kind of pauses. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Let none of you suffer in that way. So to use the old expression, if you, if you do the crime, Peter says, you have to do the time. So if you suffer 
for doing evil. And yes, this includes, Peter didn't make an extensive list, but this includes things like gossip and and lying and backbiting and all those other things that are mentioned in in the New Testament. Uh, You suffer not because you're a Christian, but you suffer because of your sin. So really what Peter is addressing here is how one should respond when they experience suffering from another. Because I'm sure at this particular moment in time, and so um, uh, the reign of Nero is, is kind of just beginning during uh, Peter's writing of 1 Peter. And if you know anything about um, his reign, he was a brutal, brutal ruler and, and would kill Christians really just for fun and lots of other persecutions that were coming their way. So you can see, even, even our own hearts would say, well, we need to start a war. We need, to, we need to arm ourselves against these persecutors and we need to do uh, what we need to do to survive and be safe. But Peter is saying, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, he's saying, look, remember chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you And then he adds this little bit, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter doesn't say, well, if they're nice to you, if they're asking like a serious question and they're very genuine about it and they're being kind to you and they really want to know about the gospel, then you can be gentle and respectful. But if they're being mean to you, you better fire back just in the same way they're doing it to you. Now, Peter says this is for everyone. We're to be gentle and respectful to everyone who asks. Now, the way they ask might not be like, tell me about the hope that you have in you. The way they ask might be um, putting you um, through a torturous situation, uh, making you recant or forcing you to recant what it is that you believe. And that's what the early church experienced. Threw them into the arena to be ripped apart by lions. That might be the way in which you're asked Tell us about this hope that you have as the lion comes bearing down upon you. Then in verse 16, Peter tells his readers how they are to respond. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So a few ways that you can experience this sort of shame that Peter is referring to here. One is, is, we see this a lot in our culture now, is feeling shamed by your belief in, in, belief in and living for the gospel. Because the world will try to shame Christians. They will, they will hurl accusations at you, uh, calling your beliefs backwards, or, or judgmental, or condemning, or, my favorite, intolerant. They will try to, try to redefine Christianity uh, in such a way that, that, that it makes you think you're wrong for believing what you believe because they have manipulated the, the, the Scriptures to make it say what they want it to say. And it's typically geared around the sin that they want to uh, interact with. And they may even try to bring charges against you to force you to recant, like I mentioned earlier, is, uh, recant what you believe concerning biblical Christianity. That's all fair game in this world. 
In 4, 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, it has already been mentioned that, that these, these Christians that Peter is writing to are being insulted because they don't participate in the way of life that they used to, the way that they used to live before Christ. They, they say, no, that's not the way I live anymore. And then there's shame that comes out of that. They're ridiculed for it. They're laughed at. And that's a shame that we can experience. A second sort of shame that we can experience is, is brought on by ourselves, is by denying Christ before unbelievers. So when it comes time to make a defense for the hope that you have, or to simply share the gospel, or to apply the gospel to a work situa- situation, because the gospel does apply to your work situations. It's not just in the church. But instead of bringing the gospel to bear on the situations, you shrink back. You kind of sit quietly in the corner. You don't speak up. You, you, you don't insert the gospel into the conversation when it is needed. And all of those are shameful acts that we can experience. And just so you don't think that I'm just trying to shame you into sharing the gospel, listen to the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 8, verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus says, if, you'll be, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when that day comes. So the third way to, to act shamefully is, is by failing to persevere in the faith. So this would look like experiencing some sort of suffering and then instead of, of leaning into the suffering and, and knowing that God has allowed it for your good, you instead, you don't jump to questioning uh, God like our, like our friend in Psalm 88 does because asking questions of God is okay, just so you know that. Doubt, all of those things. Those things are okay if you are seeking uh, uh, answers in, uh, from the right place when it comes to Christianity. All those are okay. So that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the opposite. So when this, this uh, suffering or this pain has come upon you, you assume that God is not who he claims to be. Because if he was so good, he wouldn't let this suffering happen to me. And that for some reason you know better than he does. The God of the universe. I know better than him. This is not what I need at this particular moment. This does not need to be happening to me or to those people over there. That, that the Bible isn't true when it says God loves his children. And just like our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, you allow yourself to believe a lie about God. And then that lie carries you into unbelief. Now, if it, if it were for your namesake that you suffered, that would be one thing, okay? Uh, it would be okay to do all of these things that Peter mentioned earlier. Um, because you need to keep your name clean. You need to keep your name safe, you would say. I don't want to, I don't want to tarnish the family name. But it's not for our namesake that we suffer. We suffer uh, for our namesake as Christian. Not as Kevin or anybody else's name. 
We suffer for the name of Christ. And in the name of Christ, Peter is saying, there is no shame. It doesn't matter what people say to you. It doesn't matter what they call you. It doesn't matter how they question your beliefs, if it's, if it's biblical and true. There is no shame in Christ. So the conclusion to this is, is, is to go back to where the Scriptures tell us, do not fear man. The only thing man can do to you or humanity can do to you is, is yeah, they can throw some names at you. They can, they can maybe harm you physically. Yeah, they can even kill you. But the Scriptures teach that we don't even need to fear that. We are to fear the one who can both kill us and throw us into hell. And that one is God. Which means man can do you no real harm. So there is no need to be ashamed of the gospel before them. There's nothing to fear. And again, the glory of God is our ultimate end, even in our suffering. And it's in our suffering as Christians where Peter is telling us we are forged in our faith. Look at verse 17. Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Now this is probably uh, the most troublesome verse of this morning's text because it says that judgment will begin with the household of God. And you can read there, the judgment will begin with the church. The judgment will begin with Christians before any sort of judging will happen with the outside world, those outside the household of God, those outside the church. So you may be thinking, I thought God's judgment uh, for the believer had already been placed on Christ. Didn't that already happen? I thought we were done with that. Well, to make sense of this, we have to discern what Peter is talking about here. And we do this by recognizing that there are two sides to suffering that Peter has been talking about his entire letter. I, I hope you've observed that, that Peter's entire letter to the church is about suffering. And how do you walk as a believer in the midst of suffering? And so there's two sides that Peter continually brings up about suffering. First is what we discussed in, in our second point, and that is our suffering as Christ, for, for Christ, finds its significance in Christ's suffering for us. Christ's suffering wasn't a waste. Therefore, the the suffering that we experience is not a waste either. The suffering should not surprise you because it's exactly what our Savior Jesus experienced. And Jesus himself tells us that this will be our experience as well. John 15. Jesus' own words. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we suffer for the sake of Christ's name, not our own. So the second side of suffering that Peter brings up is found here in verse 17. 
for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this is important in our making sense of our own suffering. Because if you were to cross-reference these verses, um, these, or these words right here in verse 17, it would probably take you to Old Testament passages uh, like Ezekiel 9.6 or Jeremiah 25.29, and the same wording would be used here that Peter is using, that judgment will begin on the household of God. The difference in those passages and what Peter is saying is that those two passages in particular are dealing with uh, judgment based on sin that God's people are committing and not a judgment based on their faithfulness. So why does Peter use it here? Well, for for that, we have to look briefly at the text we looked at last week in chapter 4, verse 1, that says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So we remember last week uh, that this verse does not mean that you will be without sin, that you're going to be somehow sinless on this earth. What Peter is saying here is as you suffer, you are being severed from sin's power, continued power over you. It will continue to do that throughout your life. That is the sanctification process, that the process in which God is making you more and more like Jesus every single day and every single moment of your life as a believer. And that ultimately what Peter means is that when we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also share in the righteousness of Christ as well. As one author said, Christ, by suffering, identified with his people. So Christ, in his suffering, that he did not have to do, but chose freely to go to the cross for us, he identifies himself with us through his suffering and his death. So Christ by suffering identified with his people. Christians by suffering are identified with Christ. So this is, this is part of our union with him. This is a part of our union with Christ. That we are unified with him in life, but we are also unified with him in our sufferings. And so the way we identify with Christ is by continually being purified by the fires of God's love. By his good fatherly discipline. It's in the same way. I don't stop disciplining my children. Um, you know, I don't do it in the same way I would do a, you know, discipline a three-year-old that I do to a 17-year-old. But I don't stop disciplining them. And the reason why is because I want them to walk rightly. I want them to, to walk according to the ways of the Lord. I want them to, to, to stay on the straight and narrow path that, uh, that God calls us to as, as believers. And ultimately, I do it because I love them. Not because I hate them. Because the sufferings that we endure are, are by, from God are actually refining us and purifying us, not crushing or destroying us. In Malachi 3, uh, 1 through 4 in the Old Testament paints this beautiful picture of this very, very um, idea that God is doing to his people. Malachi prophesies, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's speaking about Jesus. And the messenger of of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like 
fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, God's people, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So as God refines us, Malachi says, he makes us ready to live a life that is pleasing to him. So it's paramount that you understand the focus of your suffering is the glory of God. And by understanding that, just like an earthly father would, uh, wouldn't crush his, his child, that this is especially true, especially true of your heavenly father. That the fires of his love are forging your faith in him. And he will not stop until Jesus comes back. So the pastor and theologian, I think some of you guys know this guy, his name is John Calvin, knew what it meant to suffer. So I think a lot of times um, Calvin is kind of caricatured in, 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 in history um, as some hard-nosed you know, theologian that's only, that only cares about pushing the five points of Calvinism, which didn't exist in Calvin's day, by the way. It's something we came up with later. And if you read more and more about Calvin, you find out that wasn't true. All of these things that people say about this man just weren't true. But this is a man um, who was a pastor and literally gave his life for the gospel and for the church. Literally, on his deathbed, he was still writing for the church. Still giving, giving it his all. So in his lifetime, though... Calvin wrestled with the same problems that we all face in life. He, he wrestled with his own sin. He wrestled with, with sickness. Um, just, he was always sick. The guy was always sick. Uh, he wrestled with persecution. Uh, he wrestled with exile. Uh, he wrestled with, with people who hated him. People even hated him then, and they still hate him now, even though he's dead. Um, that he wrestled with divisions in his own family and in the church that he pastored. And not to mention that he lost a wife and a child during his lifetime. And this is what his friend and colleague in ministry um, wrote down, his Theodore Beza, who, who was also a very old man when he came to visit Calvin. And uh, he, was, he was talking to Calvin as he's dying. And one of, the, one of the things that Calvin says, one of my favorite quotes by John Calvin, uh, he says this to, to, to Beza, You, O Lord, crush me. But it is abundantly sufficient for me to know that this crushing is from your hand. You, O oh Lord, crush me. But it's okay because I know that it's your hand that is doing it. And ultimately I know that it is for my good. That you are, that you are molding me and shaping me uh, until I close my eyes to death. So his faith in God, Calvin's faith in God was forged by his sufferings. And that is the only way he could say those words or we can say those words one day. Look at verse 18. Peter writes, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter is quoting from Proverbs 11.31 here, almost verbatim, to drive his point home to his readers biblically. <laughs> He's saying, look, this isn't what I'm saying. This is what God's word has always said. 
that the righteous will scarcely be saved, just meaning that the righteous will walk through suffering as well. But what if, if the righteous have to walk through suffering, what will become of those who are not righteous? What will become of the sinner? So Peter wants them to understand that God saves his people by refining and purifying them through their suffering. So that when suffering comes, they understand what its ultimate, is, uh, ultimate end is. And it's to make you more like Christ. To point you back to what uh, the suffering that, that Christ endured for your salvation. And then to draw you closer to Him. Even in your pain. Especially in your pain. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I love that Peter ends this portion of his letter with with some application points. Saying that, that, that first, when you suffer, that you are to trust in your faithful creator. Notice he doesn't say trust in God, although he is saying that. He uses faithful creator. This is the only place in the New Testament, where the title creator is used for God. Peter uses it here. And he does it, I think, because he's reminding his readers and he's reminding us, so when I say his readers, I mean us too, because we're reading this letter as well, and it is written to us as well. So Peter is reminding us that come what may, God, your creator, is sovereignly in control of all things. All things that are happening to you, God is in control. All things that will happen to you, God is in control. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will finish the good work that he started within you. So remember who he is. Remember that it is out of his love for you that you suffer. And remember that the return on your suffering is a blessing. Both now and into eternity which makes his second application point even more important. That we are to persevere in the faith. That even, if, even whatever suffering you are experiencing right now, Christian, that you are to persevere. And that you are not meant to carry that burden by yourself. You are not meant to carry that suffering alone. God has placed you in a covenant family called the local church that you are to, to insist on them to carry this with you to give this over to them, to persevere in the faith, do not give up, finish faithfully and finish strong. Amen. Let's pray.